Donner, welcome to the show. Dan, it's awesome to be here. Love go to market, love talking about all this stuff and looking forward to diving in. Awesome. So your background is pretty unique, man. You you didn't come up in marketing or sales roles or even in SaaS and you don't have the inbound marketing biases and, and the mental baggage that so many other marketers accumulated in the last decade. Lucky for you. Your background is actually in engineering and then product management. And then you moved into marketing leadership after that in the uh, medical device and wellness space. So it's obvious that something about your background has enabled you to think differently about demand gen. So what have you figured out how to do that most go-to-market leaders are struggling with or still stuck on? I think the number one experience early in my career that made me the marketer and executive and revenue person that I am today is being obsessed with what customers are actually doing. And so that helped a lot early on to develop products, to understand what features we should build in, to put together business cases for how much, like, is it worth to do this million dollars worth of software development for a return over a certain period of time for the CFO? And getting customer data and feedback to to fuel those things. Um, and then all I did was, instead of thinking about how I'm going to use those insights to make a product or develop a feature, I'm just going to use those insights to figure out how to communicate better with people so that they understand more about what we're doing so that they're more likely to consider buying our product or being more aware in consideration of our category in the future. Um, and I continue as I spend more and more time in in tech and SaaS, I see that most marketers never talk to customers, which is why the marketing is so formulaic um, and basically outdated. Um, and if you talk to customers and you really understand how they want to research, how they move through buying processes, it would like just the qualitative of hearing the customers say some of these things would eliminate a lot of the stuff that you're doing in your marketing mix right now. Um, and so, yeah, to get it started, that's, I think, something unique, but we'd happy to go deeper on anyone anywhere you want to go. Yeah, so you started doing this mid-2010s. So you started really going deep on understanding the customer. There obviously weren't tools like Gong back then where you could record every customer call and things like that. So what what did you do then and how has that kind of uh, evolved over the years? And, and what are you doing today to learn about customers? And, and also, like, how do you advise others to learn? Maybe you don't have the podcast that generates so much feedback. Yeah, I think that thinking that listening to recorded Gong calls as customer research as a marketer is completely wrong. Um, and so what I did starting in 2013 was I would go to our customer's place of business. These companies were manufacturing products or trying like we would visit the Coca-Cola manufacturing facility and figure out how our product's going to work inside of that high volume facility. So being or in a hospital, so being inside of their place of business, you see how it feels, you see what's going on in the break room, you see how people are interacting, you see what the KPIs that are on the TV screens in the manufacturing facilities, all the stuff that you don't see when you're listening to gong calls. And when you are there and you see the KPIs on the board and you got your decision maker right there, you can have a pretty good lead in to say, oh, what's going on with your KPIs? What are you measuring? How are you measuring it? Why? What do you think about that? It was up to you, what would you change it to? Why? And so the number one thing that you get, and you, I said it twice in that thing, you see things, but the number one thing that you get is why. And that's what I think B2B marketers are missing right now. They see what's going on. They don't really understand why. And the why is how you drive products, how you drive marketing strategy, things like that. And so I am 
full on primary market research as a marketer inside of the place of business of your customers, the number one, like virtually one on ones as a number two, and observing what people are doing inside of communities, events, social as a number three. And I would put gong calls behind that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you started demand gen how long ago? Two years now or a year and a half? Refine Labs. Sorry, you started State of Demand Gen. Oh, the podcast was started um, a little over 18 months ago. We were using LinkedIn content and we were recording long form episodes, but we hadn't moved it into a podcast until April of 2020. Wow. So how long did it take before you were like, wow, this is more than hot takes. This is messages resonating. This is kind of changing the game. The LinkedIn content was already working, right? So it was like, it was clear that the message was resonating already. It was then repackaging it, figuring out a different format, and they worked together, right? So the podcast was actually leveraged to create more LinkedIn content initially. So it was like, it didn't matter whether the podcast was getting listens initially, it was allowing us to publish seven times a week on LinkedIn. And then the podcast has started to overtake. And now you have this really incredible, like, I don't know how else to say a really incredible content machine that starts with live events that then gets immediately post-produced into a podcast, gets chopped up micro into LinkedIn, is now getting moved into a daily video on YouTube, and now we're moving it into TikTok. And so, it, but it all starts in the same place, right? So like, as the distribution channels evolve and we have more in there, like how we distribute, package and distribute is changing, and, but the content isn't changing. How we make it isn't changing. It's just adding resources to get more out of it. I love that. Yeah, and, and honestly, it's rare for somebody in the marketing world to kind of do two things, call marketers to operate at a higher level while also challenging the status quo of CEOs, boards, investors. You have a way of doing that that I think is unique. How do you think you're able to do that? How do you think you're able to both kind of shake up the status quo for senior level executives? And also you've got marketers like me who are like sending your micro videos to the CEO mm -hmm. daily. So for the first nine years of my career, I worked inside of B2B companies, some that were highly profitable and publicly traded and some that were venture funded that were working toward IPOs or working toward a series B and a lot of different things. And so for nine years, I worked to find my way into boardrooms where big decisions were getting made. So when we were deciding how, whether we were going to invest $3 million on a $10 million business to go and build this new product that was going to be the future of the company or whether we were going to take the investment round and allocate more to customer success or to sales and hear what people are saying in those and how people rationalize their decisions at an executive level. And I just observed and I looked at the things. I understand how executives make decisions. I understand how they look at data. I understand the way that they think. You can see patterns in how they interact with one another. You can see patterns in how it impacts culture and employee experience. And so I just took all of that. I learned. I took the things that I liked, which was a lot of marketing strategy, some organizational frameworks, things like that. And I looked at a lot of the things that I didn't like, which was short-term focus, over-reliance on sales that puts like hitting the quarter number way before employee experience or customers raising too much money and wasting it. There was a lot of things that I saw that I thought were things that I didn't want to do as an executive and as a leader. And so that's the the starting point is that I just, I studied what people do. And now as I continue to evolve and I'm, I speak to probably about a hundred CMOs, CEOs, CROs every month, if not more, 
And now all I do is I have a, I have a view where I collect more data on what's going on in B2B companies qualitatively at the individual level than anyone else. And so I just communicate the patterns that are true. I'm not making things up. People are telling me what's going on. Then I see 30 people tell me the same thing. And then you can understand why it's happening, where it happens and why. And so that's what I'm communicating now. Like when companies waste a bunch of money on Google ads to hit vanity metrics or where companies use multi-touch attribution in a, in a totally improper way to drive, like to prove marketing ROI or drive strategy decisions using a completely flawed software. And I'm just helping people see these things. You brought up something uh, about waste, uh, raising a bunch of money and wasting it. And that's a perfect segue because I want to talk about CAC next. MailChimp sold into it for $12 billion recently. And um, Kelly Ford, who's the general partner at Edison Partners, she commented on LinkedIn about this. She said, we need to be celebrating those companies that go the farthest with the least. Capital efficient growth is the best kind of growth. I want to ask you about this, Chris, because at Refined Labs, folks focus intently on reducing customer acquisition costs. In fact, it's one of the main value props on your website. I don't hear a lot of people in B2B talking about this because money's so cheap these days. So I don't think it's like a necessarily something on the top of people's mind. Why do you feel it's so critical that it's one of your main value props and something you talk about a lot? Because when companies hit a certain scale, if their CAC isn't in the right place, they will go out of business. And so you have a couple of options. You try and raise money and push through it and hope that the category grows fast enough that you can get over the hump from a valuation standpoint. Or that doesn't happen and you need to significantly slow down what you're doing. But going through as a $10 million Series B, raising whatever, $20 million dollars, with a customer acquisition cost payback of four or five years, like you're potentially underwater there. Um, and there's just a lot of companies that play on that line, hoping that money comes the way that money's been coming. And that might not always be the case. And so it's not only about the money, it's about the efficiency of the organization. It's about like the long-term environment that you create for your employees and your customers and your investors. And so with that, like, the ability to generate the same amount of revenue that other software companies do right now with 50 sales headcount, and we do it with two people, like, it's interesting. It's because we chose to take a marketing path, not an outbound sales path. You create a foundation that allows you to scale way faster, right? And so we'll add sales headcount as we grow, right? There's a capacity model that's going to need to happen. But the key is that we built on a, on a foundation where we have the infrastructure to do marketing. We have the right story. We know how to communicate that story. We know how to predictably grow demand over time that a lot of companies, especially early stage, never figure out because they raise money. So they can just go, they don't need to figure it out because they can deal with the three-month, three-year customer acquisition cost payback period. It's probably worse than that at Series A. But we can't. We didn't raise money. We couldn't do that. So it, it's weird how not having the availability of resources forces hard choices, forces choices like since we couldn't hire a sales team, and I wouldn't have even if we had the money, since we couldn't hire a sales team, we need to figure out how to get LinkedIn to work the best. Look at it now, right? And so I find it super fascinating. There's places where adding money is super valuable. And don't get me wrong, like I'm totally agree with that concept. But there's times where the scarcity of not having it drives innovation in a way that you'll never get any other way. And so I think that there's a, a lack of innovation for that reason in marketing and go-to-market. 
It's also a uh, lost opportunity cost when you're deploying dollars to, let's say, you hire a bunch of salespeople, you pour a bunch of money into them. You know, on average, half the market going to work out. What if you took the money you spent on those 25 salespeople and poured it into LinkedIn ads or something mm-hmm. that uh, was producing what is a huge opportunity cost thing, too, when you're talking about raising money and then throwing a lot of it away? Yeah. Go ahead. I don't even really look at it in a, like a sales allocation versus a marketing allocation anymore because what I realize is that I don't even need to go and look at the sales expenses anymore. Marketing's wasting most of their money. And so like marketing doesn't need, like at first I thought it was that what companies need to do is they need to hire less salespeople so that more of the money can go to marketing so that marketing can do marketing. That's not true at all. Marketing just wastes most of their budget. Marketing needs to figure out how to spend it better and get drive better ROI. So I'm like kind of out of the, the conversation that like they companies hire too many salespeople. Companies got to do what they got to do. And right now marketing's not performing. So they got to hire more salespeople to go hit their revenue targets. And they're going to have to keep doing that until marketing can deliver. Um, and so I find this like there's organizational challenges here because you start to get entrenched in a model and it's hard to move out of it. But the root of this for any company that's facing this, where basically like you have too many sales resources and not enough market demand, which is a lot of companies have that. You can tell that by low quota attainment, overall low productivity, potentially high attrition, like things like that. When you're in those cases, the solution is to fix marketing. A lot of companies look at it and they're like, okay, we need to get a a different sales tech tool or we need to go and adopt ABM or whatever. Like, like, so we need to be one team. We need to bring it under a chief revenue officer. All these things that are superficial. The real solution is to do better marketing because that's the number one lever of how people buy today. It's interesting you talk about that because we actually surveyed a bunch of uh, growth equity VCs last year and they said that at least 25, but up, upwards of 50% of sales and marketing dollars are completely wasted. And I'm curious in your view, fully burdened CAC, is it better or worse than 50%? Are, are companies wasting more than 50% of uh, sales and marketing spend or is it, even more, is it a little bit better than that? If you look at just marketing spend, I'm not going to touch the sales side, but if you look at just the marketing spend and then you take out headcount, because it's tough to say that headcount is wasted, so you just go to programs, that's somewhere between 20 and 80% of it is wasted, but minimum 20% for sure. And so you put that in the middle, like, yeah, there's a lot of money being wasted out there in marketing specifically. So yeah, I'm kind of in line with that. And where are you seeing the waste happen, like in the most egregious waste? <laughs> Mainly high volume paid lead gen because the company still optimizes for MQLs. LinkedIn ads, Google ads by far the worst. Mm, for, for top of funnel lead gen, you mean? Just for, you know, what spend a million dollars a month to either drive ebook downloads, but mainly like in, when you get to the millions of dollars a month, it's typically product-led companies or like publicly traded companies that look at it as an operational expense. And then for like a growth stage B2B SaaS company, you could be in the 300K to 800K a month range on Google and looking at your multi-touch attribution to show that it's working. In reality, it's not. You just have software to prop up the investments. So Google is the worst. I would say LinkedIn would be second. Content syndication would be a, would be a huge one, although those expenses typically are not that high. Some conference expenses would definitely be in there. I know there's not a lot of been happening right now. Virtual trade shows are probably a huge low ROI of what people have been jumping onto those things. 
those are some of the major line items of program budgets that uh, get wasted every month on repeat. All right. So let's say someone is hearing this for the first time and they're like, holy crap, we're doing that. We're, we're that company that you're talking about. What are the first couple of steps that you would say people should take to get out of this mode? So the first step is to get everyone on board with what's actually happening. So you're running direct response lead gen with perfect attribution. That's the only way that you can run it in your company because of how they, the metrics are set up. So go and trace all of those leads to revenue, calculate conversion rate from lead to opportunity, from opportunity to stage three, from stage three to close one, calculate lead to win, sales cycle length, SQO win rate, pipeline velocity per source, and then start to look at what's working and what's not. And then you can calculate CAC too, because you'll have direct expenses there. So you can calculate at least advertising CAC. And then you can take a look and stack those up and figure out what's working and what's not. And when you do that analysis, what you'll find and what I usually find is that a majority of the where the money is being spent to drive leads actually doesn't drive any results. It just drives top of funnel metrics. And then you get people at your company aligned on this is what's actually happening. We're spending a lot of advertising money to create a lot of contact information to push them through marketing automation so that they can hit an MQL score so that our sales team can call them, then they don't answer. And then we just keep doing that on repeat, not looking at whether or not it's working, not looking at the efficiency. I am fascinated how few companies actually look at this stuff. Why don't they? Because they look at all, it's weird to think like there's a, even some RevOps people see these issues, but even a lot of RevOps people don't see them. It's looking at it in a systems level. And so the easiest way that I can explain this to people is that imagine that you have a, that your revenue generation process is a manufacturing facility. And inside of the manufacturing facility, you have people that need to put together parts. You have SDRs and you have AEs and the manufacturing facility gets supplies in that people need to make into widgets that you can go and sell. And all the supplies come from suppliers. The supplies are leads. And they're all coming into your manufacturing facility. And right now, you have no supplier quality control. You don't know which parts are coming from where. You're not looking at that. And then as the parts come in, people are working on them. SDRs are working on them. They pass them to AEs. And then AEs have to scrap it and throw it away because it's not a good part. And then they have to start all over at the beginning. And then you work through that. And you're throwing stuff out. And a majority is getting thrown out. Some lead sources, 99.9% of stuff is getting scrapped. And so if you were running a manufacturing facility and you were looking at how to optimize this, what you would do is you would run a supplier quality analysis and you would look at each individual supplier and you would look at the quality of the parts that they bring in and whether or not those parts are contributing to become a final product, aka a customer. And you'd look at each individual one and you'd see, okay, these ones over here from this specific content syndication vendor, we haven't made a part from these people for the past 18 months. Why do we keep having parts come in here? It's a waste of time and money. You'd see that. But companies don't look at it this way, right? This is where a lot of my experience helps, right? Like I've been on manufacturing lines where we're making a million parts a year and looking at where the scrap is coming from. How do we make this process more efficient? If we reduce the cost of this step, how would it impact gross margins? These are the things that we need to look at as RevOps people, as RevOps leaders, as business leaders, is these types of things because there are clear patterns. And so you run the supplier quality analysis, you figure out that there's one or two or three suppliers that you actually want. And then what you would do is you would work with those key suppliers to figure out which parts of the value chain those suppliers work through because you don't have to do it all yourself. 
So maybe your supplier is making a part of the part that they give to you. And when they make it, it's a qualified account that says, I want to buy. And then you give it to your rep. And then the whole process, the entire manufacturing facility gets more efficient because instead of it taking you 48 hours to make the part, it's now taking you 48 minutes. That would be an equivalent to sales cycle length, right? So there's plenty of analogies here, but that's the take home is we need to start looking at it at this level that there's a huge system here meant to manufacture parts and nobody's really even looking at whether or not it's effective. Like the, somebody, you should bring in process optimization people from a Toyota or something to figure out your revenue engine right now. Find out where the Muda is. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, uh, means waste. And so you talk about, uh, let's play off this, uh, the manufacturing line. Mm-hmm. Our CEO, Scott, talks about this a lot, that companies aren't putting in sensors in the, on the manufacturing floor to measure every step of every way. Uh, I think that's probably another reason why companies aren't uh, don't understand uh, how much they're wasting. So you talk about, you know, you said, go back and look at all the different, um, you know, channels and how they're performing on a channel by channel basis throughout the full funnel. But a lot of companies don't actually have that data and they can't really get it. And if they do get it, it's crappy. So is that something that, you're seeing as well, even in uh, growth stage SaaS companies, that a lot of the data is just bad. A majority of growth stage SaaS companies, when they like enter us, which would be probably a C or a D, you kind of got to have this stuff figured out in order to command that level of investment and prep for either an exit or an I- some type of IPO. So I would say that a majority, maybe 80, 90% of companies have this to a decent level where we help them move to the like final step of just like, additional advanced sensors to your analogy, like looking at additional data points or properties inside of Salesforce to get deeper insights. But I think a lot of companies realize that this is important in order to make strategic decisions and just have historical data in order to raise money to forecast to do those things. So I think most companies have that piece figured out right now. One note on the sensor that I thought was interesting is that I think that companies have a very mm, assembly line type of look, right? So They look at it like an assembly line, but they only look at their part of the process. It doesn't look at it holistically, right? So when you see that like conversion rates of MQL to SQL are only 0.9%, that what they do is they look and they're like, oh, let's fix our email nurture. Let's optimize this little part of the process so that our email nurture gets better. Or let's like change our email cadence and outreach with our SDR, and then we'll get it from 0.9% to 1.1%. And they're fixing the wrong thing. They need to fix what an MQL is. They need to redefine what the sensor is running. And then when you redefine that, and you're bringing in different things, they don't convert it 1%, they convert it 80%. Um, um, and maybe you could share a story if you're comfortable doing that about a customer that you helped kind of redefine the MQL like you're talking about. Yeah. So some companies already have done this before they work with us, but others, we help do this. And so we helped a company about, they've been a customer for over 18 months now. Before we started working with them, the year before they started working with us, they generated 36,000 MQLs. MQL mean they submitted a form. They didn't even have to be firmographically qualified, which is what happens in a lot of companies, especially product-led companies. There's no quality control over the submission in product-led companies, especially that spend a lot of money on Google. So generating 36,000 leads and marketers are over here 
not even looking at the Salesforce records to know that it's spam or irrelevant or they could never buy from us or they don't work for a company or they have a Gmail. Marketers don't even look at that. They're just running ads, seeing in Google $36 CPA, we're good. LinkedIn ads, $137 cost per conversion, we're good. Let's just keep running the machine, targeting like industry targeting with no company, no job title, just targeting whatever, financial services industry. And so... We looked at that. We showed them out of the 36,000 that they only won 38 customers out of 36,000 leads. We're not talking big deals here. We're talking 40K ARR deals. <laughs> and so when you see, it's like you're winning 0.1% of these. If you want to scale your marketing, it's literally going to be impossible. You can't scale marketing winning 0.1% of leads because it's too inefficient. It's too inefficient at the marketing spend level. It's way too inefficient at the SDR level. It's terrible at the AE level. And so you just can't do it. And so we helped them get on board with realigning the definition, which was that if you actually look at where a majority of the revenue was coming from, it was where people came to their website, were firmographically qualified to buy and said, hey, I'd love to talk to your sales team right now. And that's happening organically because people are finding them through SEO or hearing about them from a colleague or were interested in the category and somehow stumbled upon them, right? So there's some awareness happening that you're a $50 million ARR company that you're going to get deals that get sourced through your website no matter what you do in marketing. And so that was happening. And we helped them show that like, hey, we can try and scale this one over here that's 0.1% win rates. But there's these over here that win at 8.1%, 81 times better conversion rates from lead to raw lead to customer. And so my recommendation is that we focus on these ones, because if we did it, then we would need 81 times less leads to hit the same revenue target. And there's way more scalability. And it's way more customer centric. And so we went on that. We salespeople to support it. Yeah. And we went on that journey with them. It's fewer salespeople to support it. Or you could look at it that those salespeople get reallocated to way more high value activities. And so oh, and then they've been a customer for the past 18 months, first 12 months, direct year over year comparison, fiscal their leads went down by 94% from 36,000 to about 1,500. Their qualified pipeline went up by more than 200%. Their revenue went up by more than 200%. We continue to see compounding games with them. And in the sixth quarter of working together, they create more pipeline in a month than they used to in a quarter. Wow, that's major. And specifically cutting out low intent top funnel leads. And Just redefining the MQL to include high intent and high intent is defined as sales win rates to customer. From an investment perspective though, what did this shift? So we didn't change anything about the spend. It was just how the money was getting allocated into what strategies. And so it's just the difference between spending $75,000 a month to collect email addresses in Google or spending $75,000 a month to educate every single potential buyer at, in your target accounts about the things that your product actually does. And so it got allocated way more to a create demand strategy and paid social. A majority of the budget now gets allocated to Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn and continues to drive way better results because it's where people pay attention and where people learn. So not worrying about direct response so much on every dollar, but telling the story in the feed. And then when people are ready, they'll just come to the website. Is that the philosophy kind of behind it? Um, yeah, and then they'll tell you where they came from, right? So we've implemented self-reported attribution. So customer people that are interested in buying tell us where they heard about us, which gives us good insights so that we don't have to run direct response. 
And then all we're looking at is blended spend against blended outcomes. And as long as the blended outcomes against the blended spend continue to get better, which they have for six quarters in a row, quarter over quarter, that you know that you're moving forward. Like companies that don't move away from the direct response model or how direct response model or obsession with attribution, both are one and the same. If they can't get out of either of those places, then they're going to keep doing the same boring outdated marketing that they've been doing for the past five years. Let's transition. So Forrester says 21 cents out of every dollar of media spend is wasted due to bad data. I know you said a lot of the companies you deal with have fixed, have like figured out the data thing. They've fixed their data. Uh, it's pretty high quality. But I think there's also the misleading data component. You talk a lot about the uh, how marketing attribution software drives behaviors that are really misleading for companies. I think you kind of started the trend of talking about this and addressing this and other people are piling on. I see a new post or meme about it like every day on LinkedIn. You know, I think marketing attribution is very much alive and it's critical to measuring end-to-end effectiveness of investments, obviously. Like, I don't think you would dispute that, but you just brought up how um, you're switching to people self-reporting mm-hmm. how they hear, hear about Not it. switching, supplementary. Supplementary. So... It might show um, programmatically that they came into organic search, but they might say in the form, is that open text field? How did you hear about us? Is that what you'd move to? Open text field required. You'll hear a word of mouth, community referral, heard about you from a colleague, been listening to your podcast, heard about you on social. You'll get that yeah. stuff. So question about that. Are you planning to keep that in open text field until you have some consistency in what people say and no it's open open forever the qualitative insights like people try and go and move this into how do i get quantitative data so it's fucking easy that's not the solution here the solution is let your customers tell you because you'll never be able to guess right there's a drop down menu i read every single submission we've gotten more than 200 of them i'm not going to put my prospective customers in a box and say pick out of one of these eight things was it the podcast was it this because people don't just say podcast they say I started listening to the podcast because Gatano, your friend, was a guest. And then I started listening to it. It was so good. And then I watched you on LinkedIn for six months. And then I sent your content to my CMO. And now the CMO is the person that's submitting it. You you don't get those insights when you box someone into a dropdown. So again, like marketers try and do stuff that's easy for them, not what's most impactful. The thing that's most impactful is being comfortable with qualitative data. You mentioned another thing that was interesting. I just can you repeat? Um, there was like some stat uh, r- report about misleading data. What was this? Well, so Forrester says twenty-one cents out of every dollar of media spend is wasted due to bad data. That was the uh, stat. Yeah, and I'll throw one out there that this is it could be bad data. This also could be misleading research, right? Whenever I hear these reports, I always think about what are these people actually trying to say? Why are they writing this report? Oh, probably because they're trying to sell intent data or they're partnered with a vendor that's trying to sell intent data. So they're telling you that you're wasting advertising dollars because you have bad data so that they can sell you intent data. This is why companies overbuy tech and over rely on tech is because they get information from Forrester and Gartner. And the information that Forrester and Gartner is giving you is propping up a technology-centric narrative, not a customer-centric narrative. And so that's my direct sense on that. Like, I look at that research, and the first thing I say is, why would somebody have forced to write that research? Because the tech company is paying them. Maybe, who knows whether or not they're paying them. I'm not implying that, but I am implying that they work with those vendors. Those vendors do pay them in some way. And that research is 
I mean, you can, I'm guessing that we could read through this after the podcast and be like, yeah, they're pitching intent data here. And so I don't think that there's the number one reason that advertising dollars get wasted is because people have the wrong metrics. That's why, not because of the data. There's plenty of data. I can go out and get every single CFO or CISO that I want on any platform. I can target them precisely. The thing that's missing is lack of customer understanding and poor metrics that drive bad media spend. And so, yeah, we can keep drinking the cool weight that it's a data problem, but it's not. It's a strategy and customer understanding problem. All right, well, I want to go back to the uh, the open text field back for a second. So you get these paragraphs or long sentences of people telling you where they heard about you. But then on the lead in the uh, CRM or in the marketing automation platform, it'll say uh, organic search, uh, branded search or whatever. So do you manually go into Salesforce or wherever your CRM is and update the actual source based on what people wrote in the open text field? Just so you guys can accurately you know, attribute the investments you're making in the podcast, for example, to a one deal. This is supplementary. So let me explain. Like We're not rewriting fields. What we're doing is we're looking at attribution in two ways. The first way is the opportunity source. What was the path that the buyer took to enter pipeline? The reason that we look at that is because it's going to be the largest predictor of sales efficiency metrics like pipeline velocity, sales cycle, win rate, things like that. And so how are they entering pipeline? What Did they download a piece of content and then we cold called them? Did we pull them out of Zoom info and then we cold called them? Did they click on one of our emails and then download a case study and then we cold called them? Did they ask for a demo? Did they fill out a chat? What was the spark that got them into the pipeline? So I'm looking at that because, it, like I mentioned, it predicts sales win rates. That's what attribution software gives you. It's the, really the only valuable part, in my view. The rest is bells and whistles that don't really help drive strategy. And then we have all of the things that happened in order to get someone to the place where they're about to enter pipeline. And that's what you're getting from self-reported that you don't get accurately in attribution software right now because attribution software misses a lot of the places where people actually discover and research things right now because of technological limitations. And so it's looking at it at two ways. What are the things that we're doing to get someone into a buying cycle? And then once they're in a buying cycle, how are they entering our pipeline so that we're most efficient? That's interesting because I would think, in my view, and this is, yeah. I'm not saying it's right, but I see attribution as the best part of it is being able to say, okay, we spent money on this and this is what kind of revenue or this is the amount of deals that we got from this. So when you're saying that you spend, you have two attribution models, one to measure the top of funnel stuff, the awareness stuff, how do people first hear about us? Well, you're putting investments in things like that. You're putting investments in LinkedIn, you're putting mm-hmm. investments in demand gen. And then you have the opportunity source which is more about like the conversion mechanism. Did they download something or did they download a case study or request a demo or something? Those things aren't actually, not necessarily investing in the demo form. Like that's not, you're not accurately tying like the investment to the source in that model. Yeah, so in the opportunity source will include referral channel and conversion, right? So paid Google to demo request, paid Google to ebook to cold call, like you'll get that whole mix in there. So you have like your direct response, high intent channels like Google or review sites or affiliates or lead aggregators that you can make direct like CAC calculations on spend. However, if you take that mindset into other channels, it pushes you into direct response. And then what we talked through at the beginning is like, 
If you're going to go do direct response in those channels, go do it for six months and then measure the revenue. It's really bad because the strategy is wrong because people aren't ready to buy and you're trying to convert them into a buying cycle. And so there's just a more optimal strategy. And so when I look at this, it's not about trying to use my my existing measurement model to figure out how to measure new things. It's looking at new things with a blank slate and saying, what's the best way to measure this based on the impact that it's having to my business and to my customer? And the available tools simply are inadequate in order to measure things like a podcast, like the impact of a community, of word of mouth, of even non-direct response paid social. And so like you can keep running marketing around how you measure stuff, or you can start doing marketing around your customer and then figuring out how to measure it based on that. Gotcha. Makes sense. I want to switch gears now to resourcing go-to-market teams. You have a successful agency, but there's also, you work with talented in-house teams, I'm sure. So over the years, the stuff that you do in-house versus the stuff you outsource has evolved, right? So I'm mm-hmm. curious, as we head into 2022, this is, you know, we're, we're in, as we're recording this, it's uh, October uh, Q4 of 2021. So Looking ahead to 2022, let's break it down into, I'm going to break it down into the creative and the engine. So the creative, I say, is the marketing demand gen stuff. And then the engine is like the RevOps and analytics stuff. Give me your take on what to insource and what to outsource. Let's start with the demand gen marketing stuff. So when it comes to marketing, the number one thing that you should have in your company is a deep understanding of your customers and subject matter expertise on your marketing team. So those are the number ones, right? And I talk to a lot of marketing teams, both my customers and not. And like a lot of them in both groups, their marketers don't actually engage with customers and try and learn from them, which is a huge gap in all of your marketing. It's the number one reason to have an in-house resource. Otherwise, if you don't require customer understanding in order to do the job, then you can probably find a better person to do the job outsourced. So I think that's the number one reason. Then obviously you're going to have strategic reasons to have other functions in-house, whether it's your most important and impactful channels, whether it's your on your strategic priorities for the future of like future long-term growth drivers. So you can figure it out from there. But the number one is we need to understand customers and we need to be able to create content that is fueled and filled with subject matter expertise. So customer understanding, strategy, content creation, product marketing all fall into into that category. You can obviously use consultants or things like that on top of those functions to make them work better because they see the world in a different view than what a person at one company does. And so that's an interesting recommendation there. On the... uh, from the rest of the standpoint, what I've been evolving to is like, it doesn't matter in my view whether or not you use a outsourced agency, a freelancer, or a or an internal employee, what matters is, do you have an expert that can tell you whether or not you're doing best practices, whether there's opportunities to improve, how you benchmark against other companies to tell you the truth about how you're doing? Because what's the reality is companies hire a marketing manager to run paid search and then just let someone spend a million dollars a year and never know whether or not it's working. So that's my thoughts on on demand. It would probably be pretty similar on the RevOps side. I think there's core functionality that you need in-house for speed. And then I would just layer on like augmented talent, whether it's for strategy or for execution. But that one I have less of a clear stance on. Gotcha. Uh, All right. So I ask every guest that comes on the show, who should RevOps report to? 
Mm. I don't really have a position on this one. I think it can work either way. I think it depends on the organization. It depends on the caliber of the leader in that function. So I can see validity in CFO, COO, CRO. There's a small possibility that it would report to the CEO, but it wouldn't be that way if I was a CEO. And I know you started a company, but let's put yourself in the shoes of a CEO of a SaaS startup. You're running the company. Do you hire a business analyst or a RevOps person first? It's weird because like you hire the right person. You should be able to do both those things in one person. There's no way that you can be a like through the specialization of work in tech companies specifically that we have a bunch of siloed people that do one function and don't look at anything holistically. Like the value, and I think why I have a really strong view of marketing is because I've executed product marketing, product management, brand. I've built a website, I've done field marketing, I've run ABM, I do demand gen, I've built a podcast, like I've done marketing ops, I've looked at rev ops, I do sales, right? So having a more broad view of what's going on in the entire company, which allows me, and that's not at the expense of depth. People, I think people like can understand that through my content, just because I have a breadth of skills doesn't mean that, it, that you don't have deep skills. And so the idea that a RevOps person wouldn't be able to analyze data like a business analyst is out of this world to me, especially if you're like the CEO of a, you mentioned startups that could be big or small, but like I'm talking more to the RevOps person, right? If you're the RevOps person and you don't know how to analyze business data like a business analyst, you should go and figure that shit out. Yeah, for sure. There's also the element of building the data model and oftentimes at an early stage company, you know, it's going to be the CEO and the uh, technical person, whether that's a business analyst who's building the models, or it's a RevOps person who's helping with that and then implementing it into the uh, tech stack. But that was kind of where I was coming from. And uh, I hear different opinions. Like some people think it's the business analyst because the tech is less important at the early stage. You just um, figure out what you actually need to measure, you know, the sensors uh, in the factory floor. And then you can fill the gaps for um, maybe software-focused, software-centric RevOps people. All right. So, um, Chris, last question. I want to ask you about holiday offers for B2B. Um, so Black Friday, Cyber Monday, other holiday offers. Is that something you've seen work before? If you have, where does it work and where does it not work? So I personally haven't done a lot of these things because my marketing is always on, right? So I'm not looking for a special occasion to run a Black Friday deal. I'm doing marketing way better than anyone would on Black Friday every day is what is my position. So I'm like, that's how I look at marketing. Are there things where things happen where they take off way more? For sure. Some of the ideas that I would think about doing, and it's different for a software company than it would be for me, but like if it was me, I would think about like giving away, I would post a video or something, and then everyone that shared it would get eligible to um, for me to like come into their business and consult with them for an entire day, right? So something like that, which is not like, hey, come fill out our form and get a gift card or get some Beats headphones or something. So more like accessibility and value driven. So I'd have to think through a little bit more deeply on the offer. But I guess when I back up, like my general stance is you should figure out how to do your marketing where you don't need an offer like that. And then if you wanted to use an offer because you understand your customers well and you understand that, then you could do it. 
but I watch a lot of companies not be able to do the ongoing marketing and then look, reach for something like this, which is the, I think you should do it in the reverse. That makes sense. Well, uh, good luck to everyone going out and getting their holiday off right. I love that idea because not only does it create some kind of viral awareness, you know, with everyone sharing sharing it, but then you also you're able to go and uh, kind of select what customer you hope. Yeah, it would be cool. Fits in your ICP, yeah, for sure. Well, Chris, thanks a lot for coming on Go to Market Excellence. Learned a lot today. Really appreciate you coming on, and I hope to catch up with you down the road. Best of luck uh, the rest of the year and uh, into. 2022. Thanks, man. Appreciate being on the show. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.